So everybody is more or less comfortable. Then the next question, can you all hear me? Is it better? And at the back, it's okay? Okay, so this um, evening, after a day of meditation, and when you came on this retreat, you might have thought, you know, meditation, a retreat is going to be relaxing. And possibly by the end of today, you feel kind of exhausted. And you feel, wow, this meditation, it's tiring. So I'm going to tell you first a little story about this, which has some relationship to this. And many years ago, I had a friend, and this was in the 70s. So this was an early day of meditation practice. And he had been practicing in America with a Korean teacher. And he suddenly wanted to go to Korea and practice in a real monastery. And his teacher showed him and told him that he was going there, the first Westerner in that Korean monastery. He was going to be like a representative for the whole of Western Buddhism, and especially of himself as his teacher. So he had to be really well-behaved, and also he had to really be up to it. And so my friend felt like he was like the Buddhist representative, Olympic representative in Korea. And so he really had to be good. So he really went like, you know, he was young, full of energy. I am going to go to this, you know, real monastery, but I must be as good as anybody else and really represent America. And he goes there, and there they do what is like an ordinary schedule for them, but a hard schedule for my friend. Because basically they get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, go to bed at 10, and they sit 10 hours a day. 50 minutes, 5, 0 at a time, and they only walk 10 minutes and then another time. And through the day they do this. And he just managed to do that. It's tough, it's tough, but he can just about do it. Every day if he, can I do it today? Yes, I must do it today, but he doesn't. And then he hears through the grapevine that actually this being the winter retreat, they're going to do a special hard week. And the whole week, they're not going to sleep, and they're going to sit all day and all night. (laughs) And then if you wait a minute, you know, I did not sign up for this. And he thinks, you know, I can barely do this 10 hours a day. How can I do 20 hours? I I can't. I'm going to die or something. And so he goes to the teacher. And he tells the teacher, you know, I have this, you know, this week is coming up. I mean, I'm frightened. I'm really anxious. I can't do this. And then the teacher told him, don't worry. Just do it a breath at a time. Don't anticipate Just each moment, just be aware of the breath or just question a moment at a time. That's all you need to do. Don't worry about 20 hours, seven days, just one breath at a time. And actually, one breath at a time, it was fine. 
He could do one breath at a time, and he was able to do the week. And he did not die of it. Nobody has died of that week. I mean, you get a little spaced out, but you don't die of it. So in a way, is to see that, of course, we don't, the schedule is not as arduous as in Korea. But for you, you might not be so used to it, or even if you've done something, you know, you have to, it's kind of like the first city, mm, yes, that's fine, I like this. Second city, mm, it's okay. Third city, mm, not sure about this. <laughs> and then maybe by the third one in the afternoon, he's like, <laughs> you know? So I'm really thank- thankful for all your great effort today, really trying the best you could, just like my friend, trying the best you could with your conditions. And what is interesting is that, of course, we're doing the meditation here on this retreat, which kind of, in a way, can feel different than our daily life, where there is speaking, lots of activity, lots of different things. But in a way, here we kind of, as I said before, we're cultivating these really these two qualities that we already have within ourselves, the quality of concentration and the quality of experiential inquiry of looking deeply. And so we each have this ability to do that, and then what we do with the meditation, we hone them, we polish them, we cultivate them, we develop them, because each of them have a definite effect. And together, actually, that's what will make us develop the creative awareness. And what is interesting is that this is very much within the framework of an awareness practice. But when I was in Korea, in Korea, you don't talk. Nowadays, it's a bit different. But in the 70s, when I became a nun in 75, when I was 22, you never talked about awareness, not in the way we talk about mindfulness. And there, you only talk about questioning. And we'll see if Saturday I will bring the questioning, because it can be an interesting practice. So this was a very different practice, where you just had to sit in meditation 10 hours a day, and the only thing you did was to ask, what is this? What is this? That's all we did. And we did not try to be aware of the breath or the body or anything of that nature. But what was interesting to me was that after I had done this for about six months, suddenly I became so aware. I was sitting in meditation and I became so aware of my thought. And today you possibly could have been aware of your thought and could have been aware that you had all kind of weird and wonderful thought. But what I became aware as I was sitting in meditation was that all my thoughts were about me, were related to me, what I wanted, what I did not want, what I was hoping, expecting. And it's kind of like, and it's that at that moment that I realized that actually, I was quite self-centered. Because up to that moment, because since the age of 10, I had wanted to save the world, 
I thought I was really compassionate, always thinking of others before myself. And then I realized that actually was a bit of a dream. And that everything I did was because of me. And then I saw everybody else in the room. I was sitting with four other ladies. And I thought they were in the same boat. Again, they were a little self-centered, thinking about themselves before others. And what was interesting in that experience is that I did not feel bad. I did not feel I am the worst person in the universe. I'm so self-centered. I only think about myself. I'm a terrible Buddhist or whatever. I just thought, this is funny. I thought it was funny. And I realized that's what was the trouble was. One of the difficulties in developing compassion was that kind of being so closed in, so thinking about myself, which then stopped me from really seeing others for themselves instead of through my own prism. And so I realized, oh, that's what I have to work with. That's what I have to kind of, you know, try to diminish the percentage. I would have said then it was like 95% self-centered, and then the aim was to bring down to almost 50%. So there was space for others. But then shortly after that, I had another experience. And again, I did not look for the experience. I was just doing my meditation, the questioning. And it was a free season. So during the free season, we could travel to other places, do some little uh, errands, and I had to change some money in a bank. And the banker, the bank teller, gave me too much money back. And my first reaction was one great one against the capitalist system (laughs) and more for me. That, I think, was the most important one. But what was interesting is that I could not move. Like, I wanted to go with the loot. And I could not move. My body could not move. And I realized why I could not move was because of compassion. That actually, I was thinking more of the bank teller than of myself. So to my great surprise, I walked backward and gave the money back to him. He was also surprised. (laughs) And since that day, I can never, you know, I always give back the change. if There is too much change. And everybody looks at me a bit funny, you know. Even with insurance companies, say, why do you want to do this, you know. (laughs) But I just, you know, we can't do it from that time onward. And to me, what is interesting here is to see that we cultivate the meditation Because in a way, not to create something else, but actually to dissolve the obstacle to our wisdom and compassion. That's what we are doing here. Slowly, 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 chipping away, gently, gently, at the self-centeredness which then open up. And then if you open up, then there is more space for wisdom and for compassion. Then I stopped being a nun, and I uh, came to live uh, in, uh, in England. And in England, I met uh, people doing awareness practice, vipassana practice, what we're doing here, which I had never done before. 
And so I did a few retreats of it. And as I was doing these retreats, I, first I thought this was quite a good method, being aware of the breath, being aware of the sound, doing the loving-kindness meditation as we will do the next few days. And then I kept hearing about these ideas of samatha and vipassana. And then I realized samatha means concentration, focusing, anchoring. And vipassana means to look deeply, experiential inquiry. But it also refers to the effect of doing that, which is calm and clarity. And then I realized that's what I had been doing in Korea. And that's why I was having a similar result. Because when I was doing my uh, meditation in Korea, the teacher kept saying, you must cultivate together, song, song, jok, jok, bright, bright, quiet, quiet. And that's when I realized that actually there is many different ways to meditate many different ways in Tibetan Buddhism, in Zen Buddhism, in Theravada Buddhism. And often, generally, the teacher or the tradition will, will say, I have the better way, I have the shortcut way, I have the more complete way. I mean, everybody trying to sell their wares to some degree. When I think the technique itself is not as important <clears throat> as the cultivation of these two elements, the concentration and the inquiry. And this is what we actually make the difference. And this is what will help us to develop the creative awareness. And then we can take that into our daily life and apply it in our work, in our relationship, in many different places. So this is what I want to look at now. Look at this, these two elements, these two basic elements. So you have the samatha, it's written S-A-M-A-T-H-A. And so samatha can refer to the action of concentrating, focusing, anchoring. Or of course it can refer to the effect of that, which is generally to become more calm, and also to become more spacious. And what I think is important to see is that there is actually two different types of concentration. But before that, I want to point out that possibly today you try to be aware of the breath, and you might not have been so often aware of the breath. And you might have been quite distracted with quite a few thoughts, or maybe also feeling sleepy. And from that, you might have deduced, I cannot concentrate. But I would say that in daily life, you have a very high capacity for concentration. And this is when you become obsessed by something. If you become obsessed by something somebody said, or something you heard, or something you saw, or even something from the past, you cannot stop thinking about that. I mean, your friend might want to talk to you about something else. No way. You want just to think, to talk about this. That is concentration. 
So we have a great power of concentration. But often is what I would call a harmful concentration, an obsessive concentration. So here, we're not trying to be obsessed by the breath. Tomorrow, we're not going to be trying to be obsessed by the sound. The concentration we're trying to develop is actually a meditative concentration. I think it's very important to see that. It's not that I have to to grasp the breath and then kind of hold on to it for dear life and there must be nothing else. And then, of course, you have, in Buddhism, you have two different types of concentration. Two different types are taught. And I would say one, which is more for what I would call professional, or which is what I would call kind of like a more kind of uh, specialized. And that one is not very practical for daily life. And this is what I call exclusive concentration. And this is a concentration where you really try to push away everything, the thought, the feeling, the sense. You just push away everything and you just, just concentrate on the breath, for example. And of course, this is possible to do that. But actually, it creates a lot of tension. And also, in order to develop it in that way, you need to have very specific circumstances. You have to be in silence, you have to be often in a group, you have to have a teacher to help you with it. And of course, if you do that, you can have very deep absorptive state, or you get very deep meditative state. But these meditative state, I would say, are not practical. You know, you cannot have this state when you're washing the dishes. You cannot have this state when you're taking care of your children. And so I think that's what, to me, it seems more useful. And that's what we're trying to do on this retreat, to develop what I call inclusive concentration. And so the concentration there is not trying to exclude anything. But the focusing is more about anchoring. So that in a way the breath, the sound, or the loving kindness are just kind of like an anchoring device. Like if you have a boat which anchor in the port, then the anchor will in a way keep it around the same place, but it won't remain immobile. It will go a little here, a little there, but not too far. It's not going to go way over there. It's kind of just within a certain frame. So it's what it's the same here. When we concentrate on the breath, on the sound, on the loving kindness, it actually is kind of like an anchoring device. And so then what is most important is the fact that let's say we have the intention to be aware of the breath or be aware of the sound. And then of course we will have distraction will be distracted by the sensation or by the feeling or by the thought. And why are we distracted by the thought? Basically because we have a brain which is functioning. So the fact that you had thought today, I think, is quite a good sign that you are not, you know, dead robot. You know, you, your brain is functioning. There is a electricity in there and it's doing its thing. And it's, of course, that normally it kind of, you know, do its thing. And here you're saying, wait a minute. 
we're trying to do a little something different. So we're still using the mind, we're trying to direct it a little to, to kind of, you know, say, okay, can you stay a little bit within this limit instead of going all over the place? Can you have a little kind of anchoring? And then what happened, and how, that how concentration works, is that what is important is that you come back. So it's, it doesn't matter if you go away. It really doesn't matter if you go away. If you go away in thought, of the past, the future, or this, that, or another, it really doesn't matter. What matters is that at one point, you realize, oh, I am distracted. My intention is to anchor in the breath or the sound. And then, and that's what is, I think, a key factor in the meditation, is that you make the choice. This is not a battle. This is not fighting, as Caroline said. But we make the choice to return. And this actually is very important <coughs> because generally we, we proliferate. We just go, we disseminate. And here we say, I go this far, like the boat, and then I come back. I go this far, and then I come back. And actually, each time you come back, you do something which is rather powerful. You don't feed the mental habits. You dissolve its power. And then, the idea is not to stop the thought. The idea is to bring the thought back to its creative functioning. So this is what is important. As we sit in meditation, we're not trying to lobotomize ourselves. This is very different. What we're trying is to bring all these kind of rather stuck mental habits back to their creative functioning. So that then there is more space in the mind. We are not stuck with our thought but we can actually creatively engage with our thought. If I want to think this, I do. If I think, mm, I don't need to think this again, I don't. So there is more freedom in the mind. It's not stopping the mind. So, for example, one of the favorite activity when we sit in meditation, and who knows you might have enjoyed it today, is daydreaming. So you sit in meditation and he goes, if I had, if I was. And you go into this beautiful daydream where everything goes according to plan. And time to time you think on it to really improve it even more. I used to do this a lot when I started to meditate. And in a way, this is a function. The function is imagination. But the more we do daydreaming, the more we become frustrated because we are in a multiple reality where often things don't go according to plan. So then we just say, ah, daydreaming. Then you just come back to the breath. And each time you come back to the breath, you dissolve a little the power of this habit. Or you might have a tendency to plan. So you plan where you're going to walk, you plan how much you're going to eat, you plan your holidays, you plan your retirement. Mm -hmm. And planning is a creative function. 
We need to plan. You needed to plan to come here. I needed to plan to come here. But in a way, how much do we plan? Do we plan the same thing a hundred times? Do we need to do it a hundred one time? And that's what my little trick with planning. Only plan five times or any one thing. Then after number five, you can leave it. Take another planning five times. And then to realize, possibly I don't need to plan right now. So in a way, a retreat is a little like taking a holiday from mental habit, for example. doesn't mean you're always on holiday, but time to time you can make the choice, well, I have thought this before, I'll very likely think it again, possibly now, this second, I don't need to do it. And then gently you come back to the anchor. And what is interesting with the anchor is that when we come back to the breath, or we, when we come back to the sounds, we come back to the whole moment. You see, when we go into the distraction, we go into abstraction. We reduce our experience. And when we come back to the anchor, we come back to the whole moment. That's one of the interesting things about the meditation, the concentration, is that it helps us to see, okay, what is going on here? right now, instead of the idea we have of it, or how it was in the past or the future and more, how is it the whole of it right now? So in a way we become more embedded in our multiple experience. So this helps us to be more calm over time, and more spacious. So generally there is start to feel a little more space around our sensation, our feelings, our thought, and whatever else we encounter. Then you have the other aspect. And the other quality is looking deeply. Vipassana means looking deeply, literally. We can also look at it as experiential inquiry. And in terms of the meditation, it's actually quite simple. It's not kind of something philosophical or anything of that nature. It's more about just being aware that things change. Another thing we can explore later on is that things are conditioned. But I think to make it more experiential, I think it's easier at the beginning to just be aware that things change. And you might tell me, but so what? Things change. I know things change, you know. There was a morning, we are the evening, we're in the winter, then the spring is coming, and I know things change. But do we live and are we in contact with things knowing they change? Often you have a difficulty and you think this is not just a difficulty which arose upon certain condition and which will pass at some point. You generally think it's terrible and it's always like this. It will never change. Possibly today at some point you have some discomfort or you were sleepy or you had lots of thought and you possibly thought 
If it is like this, and if it's like this every day, this retreat is really terrible, a waste of time, what's the point, or whatever. But personally, I would say, very likely things will change. And if you really have discomfort, sit on a chair, then surely it will change. And so in a way, to, to see we have a tendency to fix we have a tendency to permanentize, that it be thought, feeling, sensation, situation. And through that, actually, this is causing a lot of harm. So what we're trying to do in the meditation, in the walking or whatever, is just to notice two things. First, that the object itself changed. So, for example, tomorrow we'll do the listening, and then we can notice Sounds arise and pass away. I'll talk more about that. But we can also notice in the background. Notice that the thought comes and go, the feeling come and go, the sensations come and go. And sensation is very interesting because I presume you had different sensations here. Uh, and like, you know, I was sitting, and suddenly I was sitting, and suddenly here, it was so itchy, really itchy. And so when you have an itch like this, generally we scratch it. But when I sit in meditation, I just sit there. And what I do is that I go inside the itch, and it's so itchy I have the feeling it's going to last forever, you know, at least a whole day. It's so itchy. And you think, you know, you might start to have a dreadful disease or whatever. <laughs> but then what is interesting is within three minutes, it's so gone. It's so gone. And you think, but it was so there. How come it's so gone? And this is what we're trying to experience moment to moment. The fact that if something is intense, we really have the feeling it lasts forever. And if we observe it, actually, often it doesn't last very long. And this is where some wisdom can come in, is to see, and this is a question I would recommend in daily life, if you have some funny feelings, to check. How long do they last? So that when you have a funny feeling, something happened, and you have a funny interaction. I mean, many years ago, we were in town trying to park, and things were not easy. And my husband says something, and I felt, mm, you know. And I was tempted to say something back. And then I thought, let's see. So I did not say anything back. And I just thought, how long? I had this funny, unpleasant feeling here. And I thought, how long is this going to last? So instead of going in the story of it or whatever, I just went there. You know, he was driving. I was next to him. And I looked, how long is this going to last? And actually, it lasted between two red lights. <laughs> and then it was gone. And this is the way I checked. How long does this last? If it doesn't last very long, 
at the most two, three hours, then it doesn't matter. But if the feeling keeps being there, then I have to address it. Then I have to look at what are the conditions, it doesn't happen all the time, what am I reacting to, can I creatively engage with the situation. So this, how long does it last, doesn't mean that you must always, you know, be to the same degree. But to see something are light, and we don't, we really don't need to permanentize them. And something are more intense, and then we'll need to then look more at the condition. Because even if we have a tendency to feel a certain way, we don't always feel like that which means that generally there is a trigger, there are some conditions, and there are some contributing factors. So this is a second thing, which I think we don't do so much in meditation, because that can become a little abstract. But we can start to use, so if we're more aware of the changing nature here during this retreat, then when we go back to our daily life, we start to look, how long is this going to last? And then if it lasts, we start to look, what are the conditions? I don't always feel like this. What happened? How can I be with this? So this looking deeply is really kind of trying to go in the experience. And so in terms of the physical discomfort you might have, just to go and look. Instead of kind of, this is my knee, it's going to drop off, I will never walk again. Trying to go inside the sensation. How does it feel? Does it come? Does it go? And really the criterion for discomfort is that if when you stand up, the pain goes, then you really should not worry about it. But if when you stand up, you continue to have pain in the ankle or in the knee or in the back, then you need to change posture or use a, a chair. I think that's the way to know. Then in terms of how we are with the discomfort, and you might have noticed that today, is that if you're totally daydreaming, you really don't see the time passing. You might have some discomfort, but you're not here. You are in your daydream, so you're not aware of it. If we are quite concentrated, we are not identifying or grasping at it. So then generally we can be with it in a more loose way. That's what, what I experienced a lot when I was in Korea. Because in Korea I did my 10 hours every day for three months at a time. And every day the last sitting was really painful, really painful. But it was very interesting because a lot of the time I just went right inside the sensation. It was very interesting to be with the sensation and knowing tomorrow it won't be there. And next morning it was not there. Then the evening it was there again. But it was interesting. And it, if I was concentrated, I could be with it. But a lot of the time we have concentrated, have distracted, and then we feel it like, this is really difficult. So I'm not saying you should have discomfort. Please sit as comfortably as you can on a chair if possible. But to notice that how you feel about the discomfort depends very much on your state of mind, actually. 
So the looking deeply is really trying to be with the experience. Trying to notice, ah, this thought has gone, this sound has gone, this sensation has gone. And just to experience that, just to know it. So that when you are in daily life, when you experience things, you won't go straight away with, it's always like this, but more explore it. How long is it lasting? How did it come about? How often does it happen? How can I creatively engage with this? And so with the looking deeply, you can develop clarity, but I think also openness. I think it gives us more choices. Instead of being fixed, it kind of opens up possibility. So together, you have the quietness and the clarity, and that develops the creative awareness. And so what I feel we're doing is by dissolving the obstacle, we can develop this, we then let this wisdom and compassion. And I think what we develop is not an empty space, but we actually remove the obstacle to our creative potential. So what we're developing here is what I would call a creative awareness. And a creative awareness that we can take into our daily life. And the first thing we can do while we're here is notice, I mean, if you go for walks in nature, notice the difference between, I go for a walk in nature, it's beautiful around here, and notice that we go for a walk in nature to be in the fresh air, and generally we think about the office, or we think about this, or we think about that. And then come back. So you go off, and then you come back to, I am walking here and look. Look at the tree, look at the flowers. And that moment of being aware, generally the thing kind of like comes at us like this, like the green is greener, the purple is more purple. And then you might think awareness is magic. It adds something. Actually, it doesn't add anything. It takes something away. Like often we have the veil of distraction. And that's why you might pass in front of something the whole time. And suddenly one day, you, hey, there is a tree. Or there is this. Oh, this is beautiful. When generally you pass by and you really don't see it. Another thing you can look at while you're here, it's with the working period. Each of you have a little work, that it be cleaning, cutting vegetables, ringing the bell. And how do you approach the work? Are you start, barely starting the work that you already finish it and on to the next thing? So you do it, but like fast so that you can get to something else more interesting? Or are you, for example, doing the bell and really worrying about, I must, you know, should I do it a little stronger? Boom! Or is it too strong? A little ding! Is it too tingy? And you kind of, you know, and then you become too self-conscious about doing it. So in a way, to me, this is a, a great place to kind of try to play with it here and then play with it in terms of working. How do I work? 
Am I very much into anticipation? Am I into anxiety? Am I into busyness? Or do I bring creative awareness to my work so that I'm very present to it? That when I do it, I really do it. And I do it with an open heart, with interest. I remember I was a nun for 10 years, and when I stopped being a nun and I came back to England, I had no diploma, I had nothing, and I still had to earn my money. And then somebody said, but you could be a house cleaner, for somebody needed a house cleaner. And I thought, my heart sank, you know. Me, I was a nun, you know, house cleaning. And I know my youth, I really was not into cleaning, so this was not the ideal career for me, I thought. So I decided to do it anyway because I did not have money and I, didn't, I needed a little job. And then I thought, well, it's just a job. And then I brought all my practice to it. And I really learned a lot from it. And I enjoyed doing the best I could in that job cleaning the bathroom and the toilet, and I had lots of insight, actually, doing my house cleaning job. And now I really value house cleaner because I was one myself. And so I think it's kind of how do we approach the work? What are our expectations? What is the way we look at it? Can we creatively engage with it? Once we were teaching a work retreat, which meant in the morning we gave some suggestion, people went to work, and in the afternoon we talked about how was it. And one of the suggestions was, can you try to be just present to your work and not be ahead of yourself? Because often we have the feeling in order to be efficient, we must be doing multitasking, and then I'm more efficient, multitasking and already ahead, ahead. And we said, try to just do one thing at a time. But you really do it fully, and when you finish it, you leave it. Then the next thing, fully, you leave it. And then one lady came back, and she said, generally I'm always anticipating, always ahead of myself, because I think this is going to be more efficacious. And today I tried to do what you said, to just do one thing at a time. And she was so surprised that she was so much more efficacious than she is, because she was not stressed. And she was really totally doing what she was doing. When she was listening to somebody listening, when she was doing computer, she was doing computer. So in a way, the creative awareness is really about not, it's really not about judging ourselves, judging others. It's really not about being more self-conscious. But it's really about trying to look at the experience, to look at the condition of the experience, but in a caring and careful manner. So I would say it becomes fun. To me, this is the thing about the creative awareness. It does not kind of make us more weighty. It makes things more spacious, more creative, more light, and also, I would say, more possibility. So, that's what I wanted to say today.
Are there any questions? We have a little 15 minutes for questions or comments or anything. Yes. So this is this is other thing we try to look uh, when we look deeply. But I feel that if we do this, I mean, sometimes in meditation it really becomes obvious. You suddenly see something. You like when I saw the condition of being self-centered. Suddenly I see my thought, and I see the condition is that everything I think is me. It's about me, like mega mega. That's a condition. Because until that moment, I did not see that was part of the condition, was the fact, hey, that's what's going on. So uh, the condition is about what I would call inner conditions. And I would say in that is, what is it I think? How do I think? So it's not so much a psychological or philosophical inquiry at all. It's more about experiential. So for example, in terms of the thought, what is it I think, and how do I think? Is there some repetitive stories I get caught in again and again and again? Or when I was sitting in meditation at the beginning in Korea, suddenly I realized I was daydreaming about going to a hermitage, practicing meditation hard, getting enlightened and saving everybody. <laughs> so the condition was, I thought I was meditating, but I was dreaming about meditating, which was not meditation. So I, but I had to see the condition until that moment. I had not, suddenly kind of thought, wait a minute. So you have like the inner condition. Or you have, the, for example, the condition on, you make a mistake, and you think, I am always stupid. That's a condition. Because generally then this leads to more negative feeling. Or you can think, I made a mistake. This is quite different. So in a way, looking at the languaging of the thought, the form of the thought, thought, then you can also look at the sensation. Because sensation in the body can also be a signal to different things. Then you have the feeling, the feeling tone, and you also have the emotional sensation. And generally, we have an emotion, and then quickly, we go into the story of the emotion. It is sadness, and sadness is about that. It is anger. It, but the first condition is, I feel funny inside my body. How does it feel? How is it changing? So that's what I would call the inner condition. And then within those inner conditions, sometimes you have some repetitive thought, repetitive feelings, repetitive sensation. So then again, that becomes, hmm, I seem to be experiencing this again and again. But you're not always experiencing it. So then you can look then also at the outer condition. And in the outer condition, you have 
whatever you encounter, you also what triggers you. You know, I mean, you are feeling fine and everything is okay, and suddenly you're triggered. Something triggers you. A word, a thought. I mean, a good trigger as a thought is, this is unfair. I used to have this, time to time I used to say to my husband, this is unfair. And he used to look at me, is the world a fair place? <laughs> so he's not saying you should not have the condition, but maybe to question the reaction to the condition. So you have triggers, you have different triggers. Thing you see, thing you hear, thing you feel. You also have contributing factors. And I would say one of the contributing factors is tiredness. Tiredness. Because when we're tired, we can easily become more morose, or we can, more in my case, become easily irritated. I used to get irritated. Then I used to look for somebody to be irritated with. <laughs> and generally I found my husband, because he was close by. And he would say, but I have not done anything. And then I said, wait a minute, what is a condition for me to be irritated? And then I would find I was tired. And then I started to look at the condition of tiredness and went to rest. And then I was much nicer. That's what I mean by conditions. But what I would say on a retreat, like here, there is very much less conditions, much less condition, because most of the time not much is going on. You might have noticed not much is going on. So in terms of looking at the conditions, we can see this more into daily life. But in a way, we developing here a creative awareness so that when we go into daily life, we start to explore. To me, that's part of the meditative process to explore the condition that forms us, inner and outer. And I think that's part of the practice in daily life. Yes? Um, you mentioned two different kinds of types of focusing on the grid. Um, and I'm having trouble with the second one um, that you mentioned as the grid is an Oh, yeah. When I drift away and I, and I want to come back, then I just come back. And I remember to be present, and then having to go back to the breath is more like limiting, and I feel like we're starting not to be present, I have to be present with the breath. I can, I can do both. I can go back to the breath without losing everything else, but is, is there a need to do the effort? I did not actually explain it fully. Thank you. I should have. <laughs> okay, yeah. You see, in the what I call the inclusive awareness, what you have is different from the exclusive. Because in the exclusive awareness, you just have the breath and nothing else, or you try to. In the inclusive awareness, what you have is that you have the breath as an anchor in the foreground, and then you have the rest in the background. And so at any moment, in a way, you can bring the sound to the foreground, and the breath can go in the background. So that you are not excluding or pushing anything away. But it's more like you use the breath to anchor yourself. 
so that the breath keeps you anchoring or the sound keeps you anchoring, but there is also what is around it. So you are, let's say, possibly 70% aware of the breath and then 30% with around. So in a way, what we're trying over time, because we started with the breath, but if you look at the four foundations of mindfulness, you're aware of the breath, but actually you're aware of the body. So the breath is a sensation in the body, then you become aware of the whole body. Then you become aware of the feeling tool. Then you become aware of the mental state. And then you become aware of everything else. So with the inclusive awareness, the way I look at it is that you try to have something as an anchor because it generally helps you to come back. Because of course there is some meditation where you don't have any anchor. It's called either dog chain or in the Tibetan tradition or just sitting in the Soto Zen tradition. And there you just sit and you really, actually the only anchor is just a posture and the faith that you awaken. That's a, and then you just sit there and you just, you don't focus on anything. You just sit there. So sometimes they start with the breath. But I feel when you have this very open focus, it's easy to actually become a little from spacious to spaced out. <laughs> so that's one side of the focusing. Then you have the exclusive concentration where it's on very minute point and then it's a little too tight. But again, it can suit some people. And then I think what is useful, or well, that's what I do, is to have like, you know, something in the foreground, the breath, the sound, but within a wide open awareness where everything else can arise and pass away. And then easily you can move the sound in the foreground or feeling tone in the foreground or mental state in the foreground. So in a way there is nothing you cannot be aware of and that's what the advantage with this practice that you can meditate all the time in a way because you can be aware of anything but it is true that we cannot be aware about everything to the same degree. I mean, you can try it. And you kind of like, it's impossible. Because we have the sixth sense and it's, it would be a little too tense making. So generally it's easier to rest your attention on one thing, but within a wider framework. So that's, that's what I... Amend, actually. And possibly that's what you are referring to. Okay, if there is a... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.